Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Eric Meisel. Dr. Meisel is the author of over 50 books. His recent books include The Coach's Way, Why Smart Teens Hurt, Redesign Your Mind, and The Power of Daily Practice. Among his other books are Coaching the Artist Within, Fearless Creating, Rethinking Depression, The Van Gogh Blues, and The Future of Mental Health. Dr. Meisel also writes the Rethinking Mental Health blog for Psychology Today with over 3 million views. And he's the creator and lead editor for the Ethics International Press Critical Psychology and Critical Psychiatry series. Now a retired family therapist and an active creativity coach, Dr. Meisel provides workshops, webinars, and keynotes internationally. And he also trains creativity coaches and facilitates support groups for writers. Clearly a creative, busy and super interesting man. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Eric Meisel. Hi, Roman. It's great to be with you. Good to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I, I'm excited to dive right in. Um, I will just say for our listeners, I mean, when I read 50 plus books, I was like, wow. I mean, that is just an amazing body of work. And I'm sure we'll get into how you manage to or what you teach in regards to staying creative, keep producing, you know, staying focused. Um, but we're going to jump right in around ADHD. So tell me your thoughts on, on this current mental disorder paradigm of which ADHD is, of course, a part of. Sure. Um, let me sort of start at the beginning, even though many of your um, listeners may, may know all of this already, but start at the beginning. This modern psychiatric model is only 75-ish years old when the first Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association came out. It was always an illegitimate model from my point of view. That is the idea of, so to speak, diagnosing based on symptom pictures is not the way medicine works. Medicine is interested in the cause of things, not just in symptom pictures. If I come into a real doctor and I say my hands are rough, the doctor doesn't reply, you have rough handitis. The doctor wants to know what's going on, doesn't just apply a label based on a self-report of mine. And it would matter if I have a rash or if I'm a bricklayer, it would matter. And that should be taken into consideration. The average time that a psychiatrist spends with a new patient is 15 minutes. What can go on in 15 minutes except a checklist kind of enterprise where as quickly as possible some label is fixed and a script is written? That's what goes on. So we should be very leery of any system that operates on a symptom picture alone basis and that is not interested in causation or actually treatment. For those folks who don't know, who have never really encountered the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, it is silent on causation and silent on treatment. 
It's completely involved in labeling, in symptom picture labeling. It's really a shopping catalog for mental health professionals where they get to find the label that they want to affix. It should shock the average person that such a, such a manual would be silent on causation and treatment. Imagine a car manual that didn't say what was going on or what to do about it. It just said, if the right light comes on, you have light lightitis. And then was silent as to what to do, pull over to the side of the road, nothing about that, or what just happened, something overheat, nothing about that. So the whole model is wrongheaded to begin with. It works in the popular imagination simply by analogy, because the phrase mental disorder sounds right. It sounds like if there are physical disorders, then maybe there must be mental disorders. And so by analogy, people are drawn to that idea that there are mental disorders. Whereas from my point of view, there's just a label affixing process going on. Mm. And th that's very well said. I, I love just how clear you are around it. It makes so much sense. I've been saying similar things for years now. And it's just great to hear it that way. So, so clear. And so that said, when I ask you, isn't it true that the symptoms, not, I want to say, isn't it true, but don't you think the symptoms are really behaviors? We're really observed behaviors that we then label as symptoms that then become the disorder? Or where do you think the behavior symptom uh, gap or whatever you want to call it starts? Or let's, let's start from a different place, if I may. And that is... Um, human nature or human beings. Let's not go to behaviors quite yet. And I think we maybe we're going to chat about my theory of personality, but I think I'll bring it up now just because I think it connects. Yeah. So I have a very simple model of personality, which is the personality is made up of three parts, original personality, formed personality, and available personality. Simple model. An original personality means what we come into the world as, the, the creature we come into the world as, with our proclivities and temperaments and this and that. Anybody who's had kids or kittens or dogs knows that every creature comes into the world itself. One, one's a little more skitterish than the next, one's a little more calm, whatever. Psychiatry and psychology refuses to take original personality into account at all, and is incurious, is not curious at all about the idea that a child may come into the world with lots of chi, lots of energy, intelligence, a whole slew of attributes that combine to make that child bounce off walls in a boring schoolroom. So yes, we'll see a behavior, we'll see the, the child restless or the child chewing on his pencil or the child disrupting the classroom or the child this or the child that, we'll see behaviors. But unless we understand that those behaviors flow directly from original personality interacting with social, social notions, social conformity, that that's what's going on. So yes, we'll see those behaviors. If you, I think this is logical to anybody listening. If you put a so-called, so-labeled, ADHD kid out playing with his kids' friends all day long, you will see no ADHD. You'll just see a kid engrossed. Or if you put that kid in front of his favorite video game, he'll be there for nine hours, completely engrossed. Where'd the ADHD go? You only see it 
in church or at the dining room table or in classrooms. That is places where you try to put a boy on a seat. Try to put a boy on a seat and you're going to come up against human nature. You're going to come against up, come up against boyhood. You're going to come up against chi. And I think I, th I think it's clear why some combination of factors like high energy and sensitivity and good re reality testing apparatus and intelligence, why all of that would combine to produce a kid who's not happy in a boring setting where he has to sit there and do things. So that's one, one scenario is the bored child who's too smart for the classroom. Another scenario, and this is a robust finding, this is the most robust finding in the whole ADH literature, and that is the youngest kid boy, the youngest boy in the classroom is the one most likely to get an ADHD diagnosis. That is, it's a maturity issue also. If a child is developmentally not up to the other kids around him, he's going to feel behind, he's going to act out. So we have two, two among many models, but the, we have the two models of the immature child who's getting an ADHD label and the bored smart child who's getting an ADHD label. Both of these kids are just acting out their nature. They're just acting out their developmental place in the universe. And it's going to look a certain way. And that way of looking is going to get nowadays the ADHD label. Mm. Yeah. Again, I, I love how you just bring it, bring the circle back around to close. And it's, it's, it's so stunning to me that what we do first is we, we jump in and we we label and medicate, right? Yes. And so, what is in your point of view? What's the what's an alternative to diagnosing and treating, which is what we well, just instantly do? Sure, yeah. not diagnosing, <laughs> not diagnosing, <laughs> and um, not treating. If treating means giving powerful chemicals that are being administered where there is no disease, so there are two ways to think about this. One is alternative diagnostic systems, like is there some better way to talk about what's going on with children or with anybody? Alternative diagnostic systems or alternatives to diagnosing. And the main alternative to diagnosing is to not diagnose, is to, is to sit on your hands when it comes to wanting to label, to just not do it. And to, and to name a behavior, if you want to name a behavior, he's restless, if you want to name behavior, but you have not done anything stigmatizing or medical sounding or anything if you just name the behavior, he's restless. Then you would think of solutions, let's call them, or things to try. Let me back off just an inch. Um, I was a licensed therapist. I segued into coaching a long time ago. So I have a vision of both ways of helping, sort of the psychotherapy way of helping and the coaching way of helping. The psychotherapy way of helping is really quite arrogant in the sense that some master's level person has somehow the ability to say that he or she has patients and can diagnose mental disorders. It's a very strange idea that somebody who's gone through a master's program in counseling can diagnose and treat mental disorders. It's a strange idea. Mm -hmm. The coaching model is very different. At least my version or vision of the coaching model is just trying to be of a little help. Very modest place. You come in with a 
challenge or an issue or this or that. Let me try to be of a little help. I think that's almost the complete answer for parents as a starting point. What would be of a little help here? Would it be simply a conversation with young John about you're not serving yourself by being that disruptive in class? Please try to play along, et cetera. Is it just a conversation or is it rewards or this or that? Something that might help starting there rather than going full gulp into a chemical way of dealing with a situation where maybe all that's needed is a simple conversation where you tell your truth, which might be, I can't stand all of your bouncing off walls. It's really hard on me. It's hard on everybody. Can you help us by not being so agitated and what have you? Just having that kind of conversation might be the, the first step toward young John realizing that this is not serving him and that he might buy into some program or plan or some, some call to action that helps him deal better with what's essentially a social problem. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with you there. And I feel like we're also not taking an account, like you said, you know, when you meet with a par parent or child 15 minutes, right? How much can you really know? I mean, we know the answer is almost zero, but then there's also the the trauma that's that's in each of the the parents and the siblings, and then there's family issues with relationship and parenting and school and all that stuff. I mean, how how can parents, uh, you know, it's it's kind of like overwhelming. Where do you it, start? It well, it's one of those. How do you look at the problem problems? Uh, the parents may be the problem. Who wants to say that or who wants to know that? But that may be the case. Um, I write in the authoritarian personality literature area. Um, the authoritarian personality literature is a literature that dates back to the mid-1950s, and it's associated with a particular fellow, Theodore Adorno, and other researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, who are curious about the following question. Who were Hitler's followers? That's what they wanted answered. They, they weren't so interested in who was Hitler. They sort of understood who Hitler was. But how did tens of millions of Germans follow Hitler? Not a bad question to be asking us ourselves nowadays about rising fascism around the world. Who follows these totalitarians? So there was this big literature, but it was a political literature, not a familial literature. So I've been looking at authoritarians in the family for the last many years and the damage they do. And the pundits who write in this area will say that maybe 25% of the human race, the, our population is authoritarian by nature, to say it simply are bullies. And if there are that many bullies, you can kind of predict that in any family, the mom or the dad or a sibling or an uncle or somebody may have this bullying personality in the family constellation. And that's going to cause different kinds of consequences. One kind of consequence is making a child meeker, typically girls, make, a, make the girl meeker. And another consequence is having the boys act out. So is it ADHD or is it a, a, a bullied boy, not who's bullied at school, but a bullied boy who's being bullied at home, acting out and bouncing off walls for that reason? So your question is, where to start, it really depends where you want to begin to look at the question. 
Is it a, a social construct question? Is it a family question? Is it a nature and nurture question? Who knows? It's all of those things. That's what makes it so difficult to talk about. In our soundbite culture, there's no way to, to do what we're doing, and that is use lots of words to talk yeah. about this. In our soundbite culture, it's going to be ADHD is, is epidemic. That's it. It's going to be something like, or new drug found for ADHD. That's all the mind space that people seem yeah. to have anymore for these kinds of questions. And more and more adults, I'm sort of staggered by this. I, almost every new client who comes to me is now saying, by the way, I'm, I'm ADHD. They're, they're, they're taking on the label, which sort of was a kid label, now is their adult label because people are overwhelmed, they're scattered. So instead of saying I'm scattered or I'm overwhelmed or I'm anxious, instead of saying those normal sounding things, they're going to this label place as a, as a way to, I think, not excuse themselves, but to get a handle, on, have a way of talking about to themselves, way of talking about what's going on and kind of making sense of their situation to themselves. But they're not actually making sense of the situation. They're just affixing a label. Yeah, that's one of my friend's favorite saying that I borrow is, um, you know, he always says when somebody says something like, oh, I have ADHD or uh, I have anxiety. He's like, are you bragging or are you apologizing? Exactly. You know, and most of them are apologizing. Oh, I'm so scattered. I couldn't deliver my work project because, you know, I have ADHD and it becomes this kind of crutch that we lean on. Right. That's right. Well, I think I it's a, I think it's a mixed I think it's a mixed bragging and apologizing mixed, simultaneously. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think so. I think just to just to piggyback on that idea of, of that mixed bragging thing, um, we've come to an interesting place in in the way we feel about ourselves as human beings, where we've had a couple of centuries of the individual being extolled as the, the paragon of the universe and important. The universe, the universe has has created us this important creature. And so we're all, you know, narcissistic to an extent and grandiose to an extent that we weren't in the 14th century, the 16th century. We got bigger. At the same time, science is telling us how small we are, just a collection of atoms and just the universe could energize matter and we're just energized matter passing through for a moment. So I think we got very diminished simultaneously. I think people are stuck in this place of sort of narcissism of feeling grandiose and at the same time feeling very small and very unimportant. And that plays out in all kinds of passive aggressive ways and just all kinds of ways that we haven't quite got our heads around yet as to what's going on in in in, in the current current version of uh, this creature. But but soon we'll have a medication that will help with that, I'm sure. Um, yeah, and, it, and, and it'll increase your eyelashes at the same time. Exactly. There we go. Uh, well, let's talk about medication for a minute. Um, what about the idea of psychiatric medication? Like, what are your personal thoughts on this? Well, thorny they, ain't, they ain't medication. That's number one. Because for it to be, to, use, to language something as medication, there needs to be an illness. And there's no illness. So they, there can't be medication. Now, let me put a parenthesis here. Might there be some brain disorder stuff somewhere for some people? Of course. But that's different from saying that when you affix a label like schizophrenia onto somebody that you've said anything. You have not identified an illness by just affixing that label. 
So there's no illness known. Maybe there is an illness for some people somewhere, somehow, but there are no tests. There's nothing known about that yet. So right now, there's no illness. Therefore, it can't be medication. What we have instead are chemicals with powerful effects, which is cumbersome to say. It's sort of a hyphenated phrase, chemicals with powerful effects, but that's what we have rather than medication. Sometimes you may want those effects. If you are severely suicidal, or maybe you don't even need severely there. If you're suicidal and you need something that's going to get you out of that hole for a while so that you can figure out some other way of living, then maybe those kinds of chemicals that we have are necessary for you. I can imagine instances where chemicals with with chemicals with powerful effects are logical and wanted. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an analogy. If there's a rhino raging and, and charging you, we have tranquilizer darts that can put it down. We have tranquilizers that can put it put a raging rhino down. That doesn't mean we've medicated it or that we've treated it. We've just tranquilized it. We'd have no understanding why it was raging, why it was rushing at us. We have no. We just had a, we had a mechanism for doing something to it, and that's what these chemicals with powerful effects are. They're mechanisms for doing something not treating an illness. So in that context, occasionally, in some circumstances, you may want to apply those chemicals with powerful effects. But you better be darn well sure that it makes sense to do so, and you better not treat the side effects cavalierly. Right now, where's this opioid epidemic coming from? Could it be from giving gateway drugs to millions of kids? giving ADHD medication to millions of kids and, oh, wow, they get addicted later on. It it seems to me so straightforwardly crazy Mm -hmm. to give powerful, addictive gateway drugs to kids for no good reason. Even if there were were a good reason, you would still want to balance. Is Is this reason outweigh that reason? But there's no reason here. Since there is no illness, there's no reason to be giving kids these um, powerful drugs, comma. And maybe your listeners know the extent to which uh, the placebo effect works with regard to psychiatric medication. There have been lots of studies, and the the numbers vary, but as much as 50 to 90% of the positive effect of antidepressants, for instance, is just the sense that you're taking something. You just, if if I give you a sugar pill and I say it's an antidepressant, the likelihood is great that you're going to feel better because you think somebody's helping you do something. So we have to take the whole placebo effect into account when we talk about psychiatric medication. But placebo effect aside, it just has to make sense to give people these powerful chemicals. And we don't want to give them these chemicals just as social control mechanisms, which is what often happens for, quote, severe mental illness People need to be calmed down or controlled or tranquilized or whatever because they're too annoying. They're too difficult or they're too dangerous on the streets or they're pushing people around on the streets. So we have chemicals to use that serve that purpose of social control, but that's still not treating an illness. It's just social control. I have something, Eric, if I may just read you something I read in an article, it's just two sentences, and I would love to hear your opinion on this. It's related to drugs. 
Um, so this is in an article around ADHD and is a, basically a statement on the, the FDA said, it says a new FDA advisory states that most people who misuse and abuse these ADHD drugs usually get them from friends and family members who have prescriptions. The agency also warns that people who don't have ADHD, but take Adderall to enhance studying or partying run the risk of addiction. Isn't that a ridiculous statement? It's all ridiculous. And, but, or, and, and, but uh, the ADHD, uh, the ADHD, the, the, the FDA. FDA, the FDA just came out with a new black box warning that uh, ADHD drugs used as prescribed may be addictive. This is new. This is just in the last weeks or months. Mm -hmm. So there's that little ray of sunshine in the expression that even if you use, even if you, got the prescription and use it properly, still a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so that's right. What you just read is, is absurd, but we're in a very absurd time. <laughs> anybody, anybody who watches TV knows that three out of four ads now are drug ads. It, it, there's just so much um, money being spent on um, sensitizing us to the idea that uh, if we're not taking a drug for something, um, we're harming ourselves or abusing our kids. We're, we're derelict in duty if we're not taking some drug for something. So I don't I don't see the I don't see the paradigm shifting, uh, but there are little inroads like that new that new black box warning was a little inroad. Yeah, and you can see changes here and there. There's a fellow, Martin Whiteley is his name, an Australian mm -hmm. uh, who was a legislator. In, in the Australian Parliament, and and just saw through ADHD, saw that it was a scammy kind of thing, and kind of single-handedly by forcing legislation and what have you, by supporting legislation, got the amount of ADHD diagnosing in his province of Australia reduced dramatically. If we could get people with power to see through it. Now, it's hard to get them because they are financed by pharmaceutical companies and PACs and all of that. So it's hard to get the people in power to act honorably. But if we could, um, they, they could, they're the ones who can help shift the paradigm. Those who, who can speak to legislation and the judicial system and sort of demanding that our, so to speak, experts actually be experts as opposed to just being self-proclaimed experts. Yeah, yep, I agree with you 100%. And Martin and I have been uh, uh, emailing each other, so hopefully that'll happen soon, because, yeah, it sounds like an amazing story. Yeah, Can't wait. Can't wait. that's right, that's right. And, and by the way, just to uh, promote something for a second, um, I'm the uh, lead editor for... Um, a series called the Ethics International Press Critical Psychology and Critical Psychiatry Series. We have three books out so far. Uh, one is called Critiquing the Psychiatric Model. One is Humane Alternatives to the Psychiatric Model. And the third is Deconstructing ADHD. And Martin Whiteley has a chapter in that book on ADHD as an industry rather than an illness. So it's a, it's a good book. It's a pricey book because it's one of those professional books and there will be a paperback version of it coming out at some point. But at any rate, there are a lot of interesting and important uh, pieces in that Deconstructing ADHD book. I have 
That's great. That actually sounds like a great book. And I backed up on reading, but definitely I'll keep that in mind. Um, I know this is sort of a, an additional question I just thought of real quick is it's really more about like, you know, the deconstructing ADHD, right? So we hear a lot, I hear a lot of, uh, I get comments and emails and social media posts often of people who are just like pissed. They're just like, you know, this is a sham and, you know, all the experts you have on, they're all like, uh, you know, what do they call it? Snake oil salesman or, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, what do you say to that when you, you know, there's clearly people like yourself and Martin who, who have done the research, who have been in this world and who are writing about it and who are trying to basically expose that there's an alternative side that no one's listening to or no one's considered. Everybody just goes to the mainstream sound bites. What do you say to these people? Nothing. Hmm. I'm pausing for effect because I don't enter into uh, debates or disputes about this. I'm just trying to present information. I've been writing for, I don't know how long now, 50 years. I've never replied to a piece of criticism in my life. That's great. Don't do it. I, I don't go down those rabbit holes. And I write in other countries. I write, I'm an activist atheist. So I get emails from religious people. I got the, got the most lovely, curious email once from a person who says, how can an atheist write so beautifully? <laughs> I almost wanted to reply to that one, but I replied to none of these because A, I'm busy and B, is fruitless. Yeah. It's, if, if a person is coming from that staunch a place, then maybe they'll encounter something that, that meets them where they're at and they, they can hear it, but they would not hear it coming from me. They would, they would, I could right. write a long email with, with 19 references and say, go read this, go read that be pointless. And I, right. I could spend all day doing that sort of thing. So I seriously mean that I do not reply to somebody who says this is this is snake oil, whatever. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think I've come to this realization myself over the last seven years, where it's just like, no, I'm not the one they want to listen to. Obviously, yeah. that's why they, and you so know, they also have more time on their hands somehow. Yeah, it's like they have <laughs> an infinite amount of time to if you if you were to try to engage you would never get the last word and they would always have another, another counter. So it, it, I think it's pointless on that, on that front. Also, they just have too much time on their hands. Great. Great. Yeah. Thanks for answering that. Um, so what should parents do, right? Parents whose children um, have recently been diagnosed or as I love your, the word you used, like threatened with an ADHD label, right? We talked a little bit about like yep. starting a conversation, but really what is, what, what can they do right as the diagnosis has arrived or is arriving? Well, let, let's, let's go pre-diagnosis arriving. Let's go the threat to diagnose. Um, that sure. is before the whole family has bought the ADHD diagnosis. So A, I would want a parent to notice the pressure she's under in this current climate to buy the label and to maybe rebel against the pressure or, or to understand that the pressure is there and to see it for what it is that the school principal, the, the teacher, the expert at school, the school counselor is, has all bought a certain model and needs the classrooms to not be disrupted. And so they're going to come, the people that the parent are, is in touch with are going to come from a certain place. And the parent has to be adamant, and it's hard to be adamant as a parent in the face of 
those kinds of social pressures. And in some states now, it's becoming commonplace for the courts to claim that you're being uh, neglectful if you don't buy the diagnosis and if you don't medicate your child, which is a completely horrible place that we're arriving at. But so A is notice the pressure. B is counter it if you can't push back if you can. Probably before B comes another B, which is inform yourself, look at some of the counter literature to what you may be looking at. I always send people to Madden America because that's a, a very accessible website uh, where they can get all kinds of information. That's Robert Whitaker's website, maddenamerica.com. Um, so I, I invite parents. I started the parent, the parent resource section at Madden America some years ago, and then somebody else has taken it over. But there's a parent resources section at Madden America. So B is get informed. C is to push back if you feel able. D is to strategize, because now you're going to be pressured to take on this label. And so what, what's the way around it? Is there so Can you have a conversation? Can you walk in and have a conversation with the principal and say, before we buy this label, I'm going to try this with little Jimmy. So give us another month before we have to go down the label route. Let me let me try a behavioral alteration program at home, blah, blah, blah. Buy yourself some time before the, the label is, is forced upon you. And see what you, and so E or D, whatever letter we're at, would be to see what you can do at home to change the situation, to help little Bobby be calmer, be more in control, buy the game he needs to play. You can use that kind of language, I think, if you want to, and that is you have to play along to get along, and so can we collude? Can we be a little team here and having you do better at school so that you have a better time at school, so you have a less difficult time at school? So to have that kind of conversation with little Jimmy, to look up behavioral tactics, things to try, whether it's a reward system or whatever, there are so many kinds of behavioral systems to try. Pick one and try to work it out with little Jimmy. Make sure, I guess we're at E. Make sure that people around, people in the family do not cavalier, cavalierly start using the label as if it were now acceptable or accepted. Because often one parent is much more willing to adopt the label than the other parent. Maybe one parent is sort of primed to say that little Jimmy is ADHD and the other parent is more reluctant. So there's a conversation at the parental level to be had about let's just make believe that it's, that it's the mom who's less inclined and the dad is more inclined. Let's just make believe for a second. Then the mom wants to say to the dad, hold on. Time enough to put little Jimmy on powerful chemicals. Time enough. Let's try some behavioral modification stuff. And and could you please not use the label yet? And and not even not act like he's got a thing, like he's sick, like he like something to send it upon him. This is the same kid. This is little Jim. This is our little Jimmy. And he's not now got a mental. I'm telling you, he's not now got a mental disorder. Something's going on that we need to deal with, but let's not go the mental disorder route. So then without forgetting about 
letters of the alphabet any longer. Next might be <laughs> to actually try this out with little Jimmy to get everybody to buy. This is like a diet program or other things that are behavioral where you have to, where everybody has to buy not eating the potato chips at the same time. So everybody may need to, everybody in the family may need to be enlisted to help Johnny sit and do his homework. Maybe, maybe little Mary has to shut off her music so that little Johnny has a better study space, etc. There are things to try. There are many, many things to try before finally throwing up your hands and saying, okay, it's ADHD, I buy it. And let's go down the chemical route. So to say that all simply, there are many, many things to try and avenues to explore before buying the label and going down the chemical route. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, when we talk about, um, let's call it the alternative approach, right? We're waiting to, to slap on a Band-Aid. We're trying some alternative stuff. I've come to the conclusion that there's nothing lost by doing that. Because the, the if we look at the, I always say the ADHD children are like check engine lights of the family, right? Maybe there's too much arguing. Maybe it's not a cohesive, right. right? And if we at least, if that comes up and we can address that first, we can still do a pill in six months as a Band-Aid right. for a while. Let's, that's absolutely right. But let's look at a few things that cause the pressure to get at the label. Let's say um, dad is really irritated by little Johnny's behaviors. And that's affecting Mary's ability to have a relationship with her husband. And it's just, it's just harming the whole family system, his irritability. Well, that's a pressure to get little Jimmy labeled and medicated. That's a pressure. Right. So Mary needs to have the courage or the, the wherewithal, the presence to say to, to dad, your irritability is part of the problem because it's press is pushing us in the direction of the label. So could you perhaps be less irritable? And that's a difficult conversation for any pair of human beings to have, but that's a necessary part of this picture because his irritability is, is going to rush to judgment here. Right. The same with if the school is saying, if little Jimmy isn't quiet, by June 14th, he's going to have to be in some other school. That's a pressure. So mom, Mary, it has to go to school and say, hold on, please don't pressure me this way. We're working on things, et cetera. So you're right that there's, that there's nothing at risk by going down this route. There's nothing at risk, but there are lots of pressures to make one rush down this route to yeah. get to this diagnosis place where, where everybody is wanting you to get to, including family members. Yeah. I think it's just something tells me spiritual sense or whatever you want to call it, that we're just getting, you know, we're, we're being made aware of that as too much distraction and noise in our lives. And if we slow down yeah. and we really attune, yeah. right, we, we co, uh, what am I trying to say? We, we sync our emotions with our children. Miracles happen. That's right. That's right. That's why in other contexts, I keep inviting parents to be authentic and straightforward and straight shooting with their kids and, and say things, in addition to saying things like stop that a million times over, in addition to saying that, to have a conversation about, look, this isn't really serving you. 
And we have we have things we can we'll all we'll all come together. The whole I'm going to make the whole family come together and find ways that that we all can help you. But this is not going to etc. To have that to to come down eye to eye level to to knee level with the child and have a conversation at that at at eye level and heart to heart level. Children can listen to that and they can hear that and they they they're much more. Uh, open to having that conversation, then parents understand because the whole day is in such a rush. It's another another dish dropped and another scrambled egg unscrambled, and it's just one thing after another. And it's hard. To, that's why I invite parents to actually carve out time for human conversations. With you have to, you have to like stop everything to make that happen. So it's like it's, we haven't talked about this, but been working with creative and performing artists for, I don't know, 30 or 40 years now as a creativity coach, they too have to stop. If they're going to get their creative work done, they can't just rush through the day. They have to find some stopping mechanism, some ceremonial bridge to calmness, some way to get stopped so that they can move from their everyday mind, which is a mind that needs to get things right. That's our everyday mind demands of us that we get things right, drive on the correct side of the road, pick up our kids at three, all of that stuff. They have to make a movement from that mind to a different mind where they have permission to make mistakes and messes. That's the creative mind. It's not easy to get there from one mind to the other. And so they need to have their stopping mechanism. It gives themselves a chance to get from one mind to the other. Parents need that stopping mechanism to get them to just rushing through the day to having a quiet conversation at eye level and heart level with their child. Yep. I mean, so many things you say, I, I'm, I so agree with, and it happens a lot, but I just, it's, it's been a great, great interview so far. And I just want to see if we can, I'd like to squeeze in one more question, which really is about this. Uh, when I read it, it was really uh, intrigued. It's the future of mental health movement that you um, are part of and started, right? Um, tell me more about just your vision and wh where this is going to go. I mean, we talked a little bit about it. Yeah, it doesn't really exist except in, in an amorphous way. There are many individuals. Let, let me go to the side for one second. Mm -hmm. The American Psychiatric Association and the American Psychological Association are invested in the current mental disorder paradigm. They just are. Yeah. The British Psychological Society isn't invested in it in the same way or really in certain sense at all. And they've come up with a million, I think they call them white papers or documents or reports about sort of deconstructing bipolar and deconstructing schizophrenia. Let's look at these as social issues or other kinds of issues. So there's there's a movement, there's an international movement afoot at the same time that the DSM is spreading worldwide. It is spreading. And for folks who don't know, there are there are two Bibles, two diagnosing Bibles. There's the DSM, which is an American document, and then there's something called the ICD, International Classification of Diseases, which the rest of the world uses. And, and they're similar, if not virtually identical, in the way in which they do this kind of labeling. So the whole world is bombarded by the DSM and ICD ways of looking at things. 
but the British Psychological Society, as one example, is trying to hold its ground and say this, this labeling is not okay. So there isn't really a movement. There are organizations, pockets. There's something called the Hearing Voices Network that tries to help us understand that hearing voices doesn't mean mental illness necessarily. There's lots of natural voice hearing. And we don't need to affix the label of schizophrenia instantly, as soon as, et cetera, et cetera. So that's all by way of saying, I don't think there's really a future of mental health movement, but there are lots of pockets of interest in it and lots of organizations trying things, lots of individuals writing on the subject. And we make some inroads. I think that, as I say, I think that this recent black box warning on, on ADHD drugs is something. It's one of those markers. And you see, you see articles in the mainstream media. There was just something in the New York Times the other week about do antidepressants really work or antidepressants really dangerous? You see these kinds of articles popping up. Is ADHD, ADHD medication really medication? Is it, and then it, it sort of goes by the wayside. But the fact that mainstream media are more and more often announcing these wonders, wonderments, means that something's going on. I don't know if we're at the 1% place or the half percent place of, of uh, instituting change. I don't know what percentage we're at. Uh, but despite the fact that there isn't a real movement, there's energy and lots of people are trying. Yeah, that's great. Well, I certainly uh, know we need an overhaul, especially in mental health. And it's been great just hearing from you with all your experience and your your insights. Um, I would hope, I would think that lots of parents listening to this, including myself, just got a lot of value. So I really appreciate you. You kind of digging in deep. You don't, you know, we're a busy man. We only have so much time, but I think we went to almost all the corners here around right. ADHD. Is there anything else you'd like to leave our listeners, mostly parents uh, from the statistics that we've seen, uh, anything you want to leave them with in the end here? No, I, I would say just a couple of things. Don't take the label on for yourself, please. <laughs> Don't suddenly start saying, oh, I'm, a, I'm ADHD too. And that explains why little Johnny's ADHD. Don't start this generational thing going and um, have hope and have fortitude. It, it takes a lot of strength to be a parent nowadays. There, there always were pressures. Maybe it was early, early mortality rates in some other generation. And now it's all of these pressures around labeling kids with stuff. And so um, have fortitude in defending your child against these labels. That's great. Well, thank you, Eric, for making time for being on our podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. And maybe we'll do a 2.0 down the road. That'd be great. And I wish you all the best with your next 50 books, because I know you got more <laughs> in you. So, <laughs> Yeah. Thank you all for right. having me. Thanks, Eric. Bye-bye.